<laughs> good morning. Well, good, good afternoon. And while some of my, my fellow country people might not see we're part of Europe, I still very much am in the Europe camp. So right. I'm totally fine with being, uh, being sort of considered a European. Andy's a Brexit denialist, apparently. There you go. <laughs> All right. Um, I'm going to get off the stage and I'm going to put us in the good, good hands of Andy Budd. Thank you, Andy. Brilliant. Thank you so much. And I just wanted to thank all the people from uh, UX Australia for inviting me to speak. Um, I'm a huge fan of UX Australia. I've been a bunch of times. I'm a huge fan of Australia. I was so uh, gutted to not be able to kind of join you in person. Um, I would have loved to have come down and spent some time with you. And I just wanted to thank everybody that reached out to me on social media on LinkedIn saying, hey, look, I see you're going to be in town, Andy. Do you want to go and grab a coffee? I would love to have, have caught up. But also I wanted to really thank um, Steve and the gang for helping me keep my carbon footprint down. I would love to have come out, but a, a 24 hour flight there and back for a 45 minute um, video or, or call just didn't feel like it'd be fair on the planet. And so I'm really, really supportive and appreciative that the UX Australia team were like, yep, no, let, let's keep the carbon footprint down and allow you to kind of dial in. But I am feeling a lot of FOMO here. So I hope you've all had a really good time. Um, so for those of you who haven't come across me before, I'm a former agency founder and designer turned uh, uh, investor and leadership coach. And on the leadership side of things, I mostly work with senior design leaders. And it's partly the result of uh, these conversations I've been having over the last couple of years that led me to the topic of design's midlife crisis. Now, before I jump in, I want to give everyone a quick trigger warning as some of the topics I'm going to cover might make you feel a little agitated or nervous. And in some extreme cases might even cause you to question the meaning of your whole existence. So if you do feel a little, uh, little uneasy or queasy at any point, turn off Twitter, put your phone down, lie on the floor, maybe put a towel over your head and the nauseous feeling will hopefully stop eventually and I'm sure everything will be fine. So with that uh, to one side, let's get started. Now, with the current demand in uh, growth for designers, design is arguably at the peak of its influence. Companies have spent the last five years rapidly scaling their design teams, salaries rolls at an equally impressive rate, and more and more designers earned that hallowed seat at the table as a result. There was a period a few years back when articles in Harvard Business Review were touting designers as the new MBAs, while uh, things like the McKinsey uh, Design Effective Report showed how much better design-led companies fare on the stock market against their non-design-led competitors. Uh, this was often thanks to the rise of things like design thinking and the success of designer companies like Airbnb. And in fact, if any of you tuned into the sort of the, the buzz and maybe furore around the Figma conference, you might have seen Brian Chetsky from Airbnb arguably putting on the cherry on the cake by outlining his reviews of the role of designers in, in fast growing companies like Airbnb and also his perception on product management. But we're not going to go there today. So is it any wonder that designers are feeling on top of the world at the moment? And yet they don't. When I talk to designers, they seem more stressed, more disillusioned and more pessimistic about the state of design than I've ever seen them before. So what's going on here? Well, I think one reason is that there's a big gap between what we've been taught to believe about design and how the rest of the world sees design. And for many, it feels like this gap is widening rather than shrinking. I think this all starts with our own perceptions of design. We've grown up on a diet of lectures, books, articles, tweet storms, and yes, presentations at conferences like this, that set us up with an idealized view of our industry. 
You'll see speakers at conferences and events tell you that you too can have the perfect design environment. You too can have that seat at the table and be driving things if you just follow these simple steps. Maybe they tell you the power of doing a, a product discovery sessions or following the agile process, or maybe OKRs will be the, the source of truth. Maybe the suggestion will be to have a set of design principles or a team charter. Maybe one-to-ones are the way that they're, they're suggesting we go forward. And if you follow all of these things properly, you'll end up with a design-centered practice. But when we try to put these practices in place, they don't seem to work. They don't seem to stick. They don't seem to act as we're told. And so what do we do? We blame ourselves for not being good enough. We blame our colleagues for not being design-centered enough. And we blame the companies we work for for not understanding what we see as self-evident. Because we know that design, and particularly UX design, lives at the heart of everything. And that the right way to design a successful product is to follow a process where we spend as much time researching problems and coming up with possible solutions as we do shipping products. We've been taught that it should be the designers rather than the business deciding what to be build based on user needs. And that it's our job to design the right thing before we design the thing right. And so we get really frustrated when our business partners tell us what to do and more frustratingly, how to do it. As designers, we've been taught that in order to design the best product possible, we need to understand the context of use. As uh, Eero Sarin um, says, always design a thing by understanding or considering the next larger context, a chair in a room, a room in a house, a house and environment, an environment in a city plan. So to do this, we require time to talk to customers, to run workshops, to gather the big picture of the problem and use that to filter into our, our design process. And we understandably get frustrated when we get blocked from talking to customers or prevented from spending time exploring a variety of different approaches. As designers, we're also heavily user-centered. So we naturally put the user at the center of everything we do. As a result, many designers believe that any trade-off between user needs and business needs are inherently unethical. This sets designers up as the prime arbiters of ethics in our organizations, and we get super frustrated when we brush up against the uncaring business. This often leads us to conflict with our business partners in sales, marketing, and product. Now, Fortunately, we've been taught about the power and impact designers can have on business, if only the business would just listen to us. For instance, I'm sure we've all grown up on stories like Jared Spall's $300 million button, where a plucky designer used their understanding of usability to earn Amazon an extra $300 million in the first year. I'm sure we've also heard stories, cautionary tales like uh, Google's 41 Shades of Blue where our design hero, Doug Bowman, ended up leaving Google because of the engineering-led mentality, which meant that even something small, like choosing a color change, needed to be multivariant tested across a dozen different design colors. Why couldn't the engineers, why couldn't the businesses listen to the power of design? I mean, how can any designer work in an environment like this? And so this all underscores a set of beliefs that we hold true. But are they true? And are these beliefs serving us or are they maybe holding us back? Now, it's understandable why we centre UX as the most important role in the organisation as we truly believe what we do matters. It's why we chose to follow a career in design in the first place rather than going to business, marketing, technology or product. We need to believe what we do counts. However, by centering ourselves in our own hero's journey, we position everybody that doesn't buy into our thesis as foes to be conquered or challenges to be overcome. 
Nothing is more obvious in this tension to me than our relationship with marketing, who we often see as corporate shills trying to force mediocre products down the, the throats of our users. I think this tension is perfectly captured in this saying from my friend John Wilshire, make things people want rather than make people want things. For a lot of designers, including myself, there's a deep sense of truth wrapped in this statement. However, it also implies that what we do, making things people want, is so much more important and worthy than what the folks in marketing do, simply making people want things, especially if those things aren't particularly good or they're things that they don't need. This sentiment can create a really toxic relationship between design and marketing. It also sets up the false belief that all you need to do in order to have a successful business is to make a good product and it will essentially sell itself. I call this problem the field of dreams fallacy and it's rife in the design community. The idea that if we build an amazing product, customers will simply just show up and start using it. I've fallen for this fallacy myself over the years because it panders to my own sense of self-importance. However, as a startup advisor and investor, I've seen many amazingly designed products fail to take off because the people who needed them didn't know about them or couldn't be convinced to jump over due to the, the switching costs and sort of the endowment effect. And equally, and maybe even more troublingly, I've seen plenty of really badly designed products that sold like hotcakes, often to the annoyance of the design team behind them. The hard truth is that startups are often successful despite the quality of their designs rather than because of it, which sort of goes against everything we've been taught to believe. The painful truth is that design doesn't matter half as much as most designers think, especially in the early days of the product. Um, and through my work as a startup advisor investor, I've come to realize that marketing and a good, strong go-to-market strategy often plays a much bigger role in the success of an early startup than we'd like to think. I should also add that while I'm saying that I don't think design matters half as much as designers think, I think it still matters a lot more than founders and executives think, but we'll get on to that in a second. I see a similar level of animosity between designers and product, maybe even more so in fact, because product managers are much more actively engaged in the needs of the business which means they are much more likely to need to seek compromise with their design partners. And that compromise often comes not just with design, but at the sake of design. As such, I often argue that product management is actually the hardest job in tech. They're stuck in the middle of an impossible situation, trying to get two groups of perfectionists to compromise in order to get something out the door and in the hands of the customers as quickly as possible before the company runs out of money. I know it's not a job that I'd want to take, Although ironically, I'm seeing a lot of designers moving into product management now, partly because they feel that design has lost its influence. And maybe that product management has taken some of that influence. And so I'm seeing a lot of UX designers move into product management in order to have more influence and impact on the work they're doing and actually do some of the higher level design work that they were used to doing themselves. Now, it's a hard uh, to hear, um, but the reality is that designers aren't at the center of anything. Um, it's said we're servants of the business and one of a number of groups of people serving the business at that. And the quicker we realise that our role, rather than our, our actual role, rather than our idealised role, the quicker we start to deliver value to the places we work. Another big problem I see is a double diamond, which, while a wonderful model, is largely a lie. Um, in reality, design in most organisations looks much more like this. Very little research is actually undertaken. Very little product exploration is actually done. And instead, all of the efforts are focused around delivery. Now, this isn't ideal. 
And I think we need to constantly be pushing for more discovery and more research in our industry. However, if we fixate on the double diamond, we're going to be constantly disappointed because all but a handful of companies, it's an unrealistic and unattainable model. And if we set this up to be the norm, if we set this up to be the expected target, we're going to be setting ourselves up for disappointment and we're going to be constantly undershooting. I think a lot of this pressure comes from our belief that we're the voice of the customer and that any product decisions that get made outside the design team are by their nature ill-informed. As Paul Adams said a few years ago at the UX London conference I helped organise, or helped organise, um, we're a voice of the customer, but we're rarely the voice of the customer. And in fact, we often have a lot less contact with customers than our colleagues in sales and support. So we need to do a much better job of engaging with these partners, especially as they often have more power and more influence in the organisation that designers do. Another frustration for designers comes from the belief that we should be deciding what gets built. And we get super frustrated when other parts of the business tell us what to build. This is especially true when sales tells us that a customer has been asking for a particular feature and can we ship it because it will help them close the deal. Um, we'll come up with some kind of antidote, like the famous situation where um, a group um, in a focus group were being asked to decide what color phones they liked. And obviously, you know, when they asked, hey, would you like a blue phone? Would you like a red phone? Would you like a green phone? Everyone's sort of hands went up and they said they preferred different colors. At the end of the session, as people walked out of the, the session, they had a stack of phones, black ones, green ones, blue ones, and everyone took the black one. We know that what people say they're going to do, their intended behavior, isn't always what they're actually going to do. And so we get really frustrated when we see time and time again, people asking, you know, particularly salespeople, asking customers what they want, they give it to them, and then they don't use it. Now, I'm not saying um, we'd do better if we, sorry, I'm not saying that we wouldn't do better if we got to choose what gets built. I personally believe we would. It's just that this isn't how most companies are organized. And you're not going to make a lot of friends when you dismiss the request of your peers, especially peers that are trying to close possibly quite a lucrative deal. Indeed, we need to do a much better job of listening to what our colleagues are saying and working around existing structures rather than fixating on ideal models that don't realistically exist. As Erica Hall says, it doesn't matter how good your data is if you haven't done the groundwork to ensure an evidence-based framework for making decisions is in place before doing the work of gathering other evidence. And I think this is true of design as well. It doesn't matter how good intentions you have or how good your design team are or how good your research is if you haven't done the groundwork to make sure that your company actually supports and, and has, rolled, has that rolled into their process. As a result of all this, we often find ourselves in what we dismissively call a feature factory. We're on a conveyor belt where we have little personal agency and other parts of the organization tell us what to build and why. And this goes against everything we've been taught about design. And I know it's super frustrating. It's especially frustrating if we've been brought up to believe that it's our job, maybe even our duty, to build the best product possible. However, we have to realize that there's opportunity costs here. Businesses want to get products in the hands of their customers as fast as possible so they can start making money as fast as possible. And any delay to this leaves money left on the table. This is why businesses like to, you know, like the promise of Agile, even if it really works as they think it does. The idea that you could be consistently and continually shipping value rather than doing one or two big releases each year. As designers, we often find Agile to be a super frustrating process. It doesn't give us enough time to do proper research and discovery. We rarely get to understand the broader context or the bigger picture. 
we want to build the best product possible, but the agile process often gets in the way, sort of blocking us into this narrow kind of set of two week sprints. For the longest time, if any of you followed me on Twitter from, from 10 years ago, I blamed Agile for this problem as well. However, I'm increasingly coming to believe um, it isn't Agile that the problem, although I have to admit that Agile is a problem. Instead, I think Agile is just incompatible with the way designers naturally work and designers' natural tendency perfection. And maybe it's that tendency for perfection that is causing the problem. In truth, Perfection is the enemy of good. And we're always going to be frustrated if we're constantly chasing some unobtainable ideal. Instead, we need to learn that our role isn't and has never been delivering the perfect solution. Instead, our role is to ship the best solution possible in the limited time we have available, which means that speed and pragmatism almost always trump idealism and perfectionism. As Stuart Clark of uh, Deliveroo rightly points out, a great design work at the strategic level is a set of compromises rather than an idealized design vision. And this is the most difficult thing for senior practitioners to wrap their heads around when moving into leadership role, largely because it's counter to everything they've learned and come to believe up to this stage. And worse, because the focus on quality is often the thing that got them to that senior stage in the first place. However, one thing we all need to learn is that what gets us to where we are now won't necessarily get us to where we need to go next. And actually that thinking might sabotage our efforts. Possibly more importantly, chasing perfection is a risk to our own mental health and our own collective well-being. I can't tell you the number of times I've seen designers feeling depressed and disappointed by the work they've produced. They've got something really good out of the door, something that was so much better than was there before and was so much better than, than would have been released if they hadn't been there fighting for quality. But rather than celebrating the 80% that got launched, they're commiserating around the 20% that could have been. The features they couldn't make a case for, the interactions they knew another sprint could have nailed, the interface details the developers just couldn't quite nail. As such, when launch day comes around, everybody else in the organization is celebrating except for the designers. For designers, it often feels more like a wake. They're feeling unhappy, they're feeling jaded, they're feeling depressed. And each subsequent release, they see what could have been and what could have been. And they start questioning, what is even the point of kind of bothering anymore? Why should I be in this company if all we do is release substandard work? This is one of the things that led me to the belief that design is suffering from some kind of existential crisis. And many of the things we've been taught to believe about the world of design have failed to materialize. Some have even proven not to be true. We're not at the center of the design process. We're definitely not doing enough design research. We're usually not driving product discovery and we're happy about the unhappy about the uh, quality of work we produce. Under these circumstances, is it any wonder why many of the designers I speak to feel confused, frustrated and a bit lost? They're starting to ask questions around the directions they've taken, the decisions they've made and the value of their work. This sounds a bit like a midlife crisis to me. Here's a list of classic symptoms of a midlife crisis. I'm sure some of you might recognize some of them. I'm speaking to a lot of designers at the moment who are experiencing one or more of these symptoms. Feeling like design hasn't lived up to their heady expectations and questioning where to go next. Questioning the role that designers played in society and wanting to make a bigger impact or at least to reduce the damage that they, they see design and digital products might be doing. 
feeling a little lost and listless in their careers, feeling nostalgic about the heady days of design 10 or 20 years ago, feeling like maybe it's time to switch careers. Maybe I should become a product manager. Maybe I should get out of design altogether and start a third wave coffee shop or a, 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 a artisanal bike building company. Um, I joke, but these are two things that I know designers in my network have done recently. It's natural for people going through some kind of midlife crisis to look back over their careers in order to understand the impact they've had on the world and what they'll be leaving for future generations. And I think the same is happening in our industry. While a lot of people experience a midlife crisis, look towards spirituality for answers about some of the big fundamental questions in life, I think the design industry has sort of looked towards the field of ethics to help them provide frameworks for living and to help them provide frameworks for understanding their own impact. How can we use our design skills to have a more positive impact on the world? How can we avoid baking bias into the systems we create? How can we push back when we're asked to do things we feel uncomfortable with, like deploying dark patterns or, or um, you know, just doing things that just feel a little bit unethical? How can we create more equity and avoid creating vectors for abuse? These are just some of the questions I think the design industry is asking itself and has been for the last sort of five or six years. Thankfully, there are tons of interesting people out there talking and writing about the space at the moment. I'm sure you've had many conversations over the last couple of days, and I've seen some speakers who have been tackling this subject as well. So I think if this is something you want to lean into, I urge you all to sort of take part in that conversation. Another way designers have been trying to navigate this sort of sense of ennui is um, looking at trying to understand the language of business in order to have more influence on how work gets done and how decisions get made. And I'm starting, for instance, to see a slow and steady number of designers undertaking MBAs for this very reason. I think there's a lot to be said for designers getting fluency in business. In fact, this is one of the reasons why I moved into the VC space, in order to better influence the conversation at the right level with the right people. I found myself when I'm, I'm coaching design leaders that I'm often coaching people that are in organisations that, that just don't value design and are a little bit stuck and trying to change a company that's five, six, seven, eight years old that has never really seen design at its heart is really tough. So I'm hoping that through my, my experience in VC, I'm talking to founders from day one, and I'm hoping to instill in them a sense of design. So they hire their design, you know, their first design hire really early. They see design as a strategic lever and design is kind of baked into the DNA of the, the business. But not only do we need um, to see designers moving to VC, we need to see designers um, starting new companies. We need to see designers on the boards of companies. And hopefully we're going to start seeing designers investing in companies. I think there's a real problem in the tech industry where a lot of the people who are investing in early stage startups come from engineering and come from product. And I'd love to see more design angels coming in and offering their support to early stage startups as well. One of the things you sort of discover when you uh, spend a lot of time hanging out with business people is actually how aligned they're thinking of a designers. MBAs teach the importance of understanding user needs and delivering products that meet or ex exceed those needs. It's all sort of basic stuff. The main problem that, with executives isn't that they don't care about this stuff, is that they fundamentally don't know that this is something designers care about. This is, they don't realise that this is how designers think. And I'd say that designers have been pretty terrible at communicating this, to be honest. So us designers need to do a better job at building relationships with our executives, demonstrating how we think, and more importantly, how we can help them achieve their goals. However, the majority of executives don't want to have some designer educating them about the benefits of design. 
And in fact, a lot of the times I see designers try to educate their founders, it actually has the opposite effect. It's patronizing and it antagonizes them. So we need to be really careful about how we approach this. Our efforts don't end up backfiring. As Daniel Berker eloquently explained, we need to stop trying to sell design and instead start to demonstrate the value of design and how that can um, help people. Because while we're setting the value, um, so while we're selling the value of design, um, sorry, because rather than selling the value of design, it's often more effective to, to show rather than tell. This is one of the reasons why I like design sprints. Not because they're a great way of shortcutting along a design process, but because they give the executives exposure to the hidden side of design. The same is true of bringing design execs along to lab-based testing sessions or promoting the role of design thinking. I think a lot of designers are kind of really anti-design thinking, which is ironic because I think we've ended up putting design thinking in the hands of MBAs and, and product managers rather than owning it ourselves. These things are much more political tools than they are design tools. But I think if we're purists, we can kind of throw away the baby with the bathwater. And to be honest, for designers to be truly effective in their senior leadership roles, they need to be able to learn to be better politicians. This is one of the reasons why I hate the design industry's unhealthy and potentially self-destructive mistrust of NPS. It's one of the few areas that myself and Jared Spall strongly disagree on. Sure, it's a stupid metric calculated in a super weird way. I mean, zero to 10, what's that all about? It's also a metric that's regularly gained. I just went to put my car in for service. And after the service, I was told that I was going to get a, uh, get a survey and that I should, if I liked the service, I should mark it nine or 10. It was clearly they were just trying to game the NPS system. But that aside, it's also a metric that a very large number of businesses use to measure customer sentiment, and that isn't going away anytime soon. As such, it's one of the few tools we can use to influence our senior stakeholders. Now, of course, gaining fluency in business doesn't always require you to have an MBA, although I think it can be really good. It just requires us to use our research skills on our business partners and learn what they truly value and take an active part in delivering it. And this really isn't rocket science. Most businesses only really care about one of five things, acquiring new customers, retaining those customers, keeping them engaged, tracking satisfaction, and cost of service. And all of these things ultimately boil down to making more revenue or retaining revenue. Now, all of these five things, if you're familiar with them, this is basically the, uh, the, the sort of the, the pirate metrics funnel. These are all things that designers can have a direct effect on. And so we need to be able to demonstrate our ability to affect these metrics to our stakeholders. So I appreciate that a lot of designers are suspicious of having to demonstrate ROI especially when our colleagues in engineering aren't held to the same standard. It doesn't seem fair. But I used to joke that companies don't need to justify the ROI of their janitors. So why should designers be expected to do this? Um, the answer is quite simple. If design is happy to be considered as a cost center, like the inevitable cost of you know, doing business, like hiring cleaners, we don't need to bother justifying our value. However, this means we'll always be forced to fight for every additional item. However, if we want to be seen as a profit center, a group you invest in to deliver value, we need to be able to demonstrate that for every dollar you spend on design, you get $5 back. Now, this isn't just a casual um, uh, suggestion. This is, in fact, what Stuart Frisbee did during his years at Booking.com. He proved in the first couple of years 
um, that for every dollar spent on design, the company got $5 back. This helped him grow his team from five people to 100 people over a five-year period. Um, the key to getting executives to value design isn't by telling them how valuable it is. It's by showing them how much value they've currently generated and how much more they could be generating with further investment. This requires designers to get comfortable doing things that they're uncomfortable with, like tracking performance, writing business cases, making estimates. The number of times I've been in meetings where designers have been asked to kind of, you know, pull a figure out of the air. How much will working on this product increase the, the performance, increase the, um, the acquisition? And designers feel really, really nervous about putting a figure on something in case like somehow they're going to be sort of held up to account for it in, in a few months time. And yet often you see business partners, engineering, product, marketing, comfortable using figures that, that you know, might be wildly out, you know, in a, in a, in a few months time. Um, I'm not suggesting you pick things that, that are likely to be oddly out, but just that we need to get comfortable with making estimates because that's what all estimates are. The more we can lean into this, the more we can actually show how we can influence these things and the more we can sort of show how much value we can bring. Now, businesses generally look at designers as executors. They generally look at us on the execution level because we fundamentally behave like executors. This is really what people mean when they talk about learning the language of business. It's not about knowing a particular clever three-letter acronym. It's about moving your mindset from an execution mindset to an ownership mindset and focusing on impact over delivery. I see so many design leaders who really, really struggle to do anything other than take instructions. They want to know all the details from the leadership team rather than filling in the blanks. And as designers, we need to move away from that. We need to stop positioning ourselves as executors and start really, really focusing on adding our own value layer to, to the conversation. I think one of the problems is that designers live in a world of abundance. We know that if we were just given the right amount of time, another week here, another month there, another headcount, we'd be able to figure out the perfect solution. And anything less than the perfect solution feels like a, a cheat. It feels like a, a missed opportunity. However, by comparison, most businesses don't live in a world of abundance. They actually live in a world of limited resources and competing demands. If they're lucky, they'll be operating on a 3 or 4% profit margin. In this context, everything they do is a risk, and their job is generally to manage that risk effectively. And if you have limited resources, spending money on more Google ads that you know will drive traffic feels like a much safer thing to do than investing in a little bit of extra research or a new feature that design team think might have a positive impact, but can't tell you what the impact might be or can't point to previous situations where they've promoted a, a feature and that feature is actually kind of delivered on the goods. As such, most businesses look um, to make a lot of small bets, knowing that most of those small bets will fail, but they end up doubling down on the ones that succeed. And I think this is in stark contrast to most designers who want to de-risk products and projects by doing more research, exploring more options, and validating each idea before launch. Now, I'm not saying this is not right, I think it is, but it's also not how businesses think, especially in times of limited resources. As such, I think designers believe that they're playing a game of chess. And in a game of chess, you wanna get every single move right. That's really important because making the wrong move is fatal. And also in chess, the best player wins. And so there's this focus on mastery. However, your business partners aren't playing a game of chess, they're playing a game of poker. 
And a game of poker, you play lots of small hands with the understanding that most of them will lose. But they, if they can avoid losing too much by just playing fast and, and not betting too much on each hand, and by that I mean moving quickly, getting things out the door quickly, they may stick around long enough to get lucky, pull the big hand and win. And a lot of this comes down to budgeting and opportunity costs. Getting something out the door quickly allows you to start driving revenue quickly. And most businesses see sales and marketing are the drivers of revenue. So in order for designers to be seen more than just the cost to be managed, we need to demonstrate how we can be continuously driving that revenue. This is one of the reasons why I've been fascinated by the field of growth design of late. Um, a community of designers who are very much focused on understanding analytics of making small changes, of measuring the effects of those changes and feeding those changes back. While product designers tend to focus on much larger chunks of the product and are responsible for delivering the features that deliver long-term value, sadly, those features and that long-term value is often um, unnoticed, it's often taken for granted. Whereas growth designers are much more focused on delivering immediate, identifiable and measurable improvements. So what does this all mean for design? Well, first off, I think we need to stop complaining about not being understood. I think we need to stop finding excuses and blaming others, like sales, marketing, product management. And instead, I think we need to take an active role in raising the profile and impact of design. To do this, we need to stop centering ourselves in the conversation, as this comes across as self-centered, egotistical and needy. And I think we need to realize that we're not the hero of our own journey, but are a supporting cast member at best. As Paul Adams rightly said, the next evolution of UX requires us to understand where we sit in the organisation and the role that we really play. The key to this is making sure that we're perceived as Keller and Beck rather than Jar Jar Binks, a super niche Star Wars reference if ever there was one. We also need to stop fixating over idealised processes or worrying that we're doing it wrong. But rather we need to accept the current reality and work within the constraints. It doesn't mean not pushing for change, but it doesn't mean not setting ourselves up for an impossibly high level of expectation and then beating ourselves up when inevitably we can't deliver. And ultimately, we need to do a much better job of demonstrating the value design can bring by showing rather than telling. And that this is something that won't happen overnight. It requires a ton of patience. It requires a need to be comfortable shipping imperfect solutions. But if we can do this, I believe we'll finally be able to own our seat at the table and this won't just be a, us sitting in a high chair playing with our crayons um, while the grown-ups speak. This will actually be driving things forward. So thank you very much for uh, your indulgence uh, the, this evening. And um, I'm open to any questions the audience might have. Thank you very much. We have a question from Kevin over here. Hang on, Andy, we'll just run a microphone around. Sure thing. Thanks, Andy, for getting up at 6am in the morning in London. <laughs> um, today, we've been talking a lot about ethics and producing work that matters. Um, and this is probably another anxiety that designers are faced with today. Uh, do you have any advice about how designers can prioritise their concerns and uh, what to focus on most? This is, this is a really interesting question. It's also a real struggle for me. I actually wrote an article um, a few years ago on my blog about this tension. 
Um, I think it goes back to some of the things I was saying in my talk. I think we are trained um, through university, but also through the kind of the um, the media we we sort of um, consume to believe that sort of like design is a naturally ethical um, uh, um, industry, and that we should all be doing you know good in the world. And I get that. I'm not I'm not saying that is 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 not a, a good thing to do. But I think what ends up happening is this sets up expectations that are really, really hard to deliver. I see a lot of people that get up on stage like, hey, like I worked at Uber for 15 and 20 years and I made several million pounds. And then I wondered, hmm, am I doing good stuff? And then I'm going to go and I'm going to do six months working for a company that delivers, you know, that designs solutions for, you know, um, starving people or, or, or medical conditions in Africa. I, I think there's a real kind of like... Um, sort of hubris often around kind of like, hey, I'm gonna now go off and do this good thing because I've done an awful lot of kind of like, you know, maybe less good things. And also I'm in a position of, of um, uh, security in my, um, my career that I can do that. And that's great. If you have been working at Uber for 15 years, if you've cashed out, you know, multimillionaire, you could go and do what the hell you want. And if you've got a, uh, you've got some moral, you know, issues that you need to cleanse by doing good stuff, do it. But what I think of is I think of that designer who's three or four years into their career, who is struggling to put together a, a enough money to um, get a mortgage, who is seeing all of this stuff, who is seeing all these amazing case studies from IDEO about kind of solving all these major problems, who is seeing, seeing these senior people get up on stage and berate them for why are they not, you know, why are they not helping the world? And I think that's a huge amount of pressure to be putting on individuals. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it if you're in a position to do it. But I really, really wish we would stop making people feel bad because they are not um, solving world hunger. Like, we have built this idea that design is somehow at the centre of everything and that design can solve all these issues. But, but I, I think that's a fallacy. I'm not saying that we can't help. I'm not saying we can't have a, a, a role to play. But I think this is another example of us setting ourselves up far too high standards often that then creates this kind of real sort of moral problem, which then leads to us having these kind of midlife crises. Oh, why haven't I gone and, and, and solved these, these, these big issues? So I think we need to kind of be a little bit more balanced. I think it's almost like the sort of the, the aspirational magazines. Like I remember by flicking through a partner's um, Vogue, uh, you get to the back sort of page of Vogue and there's somebody who, who is, a, is a parent who has a day job as a model and in the evening they go and they they run a, a animal sanctuary sort of you know helping animals recover from horrible situations you're like well that's brilliant but i, I th there's nothing in my life there's nothing in my kind of context that would allow me to do that and all i'm doing now is reading these things and feeling really bad about myself and so i think we need to try and step away from this kind of feeling bad like there aren't a huge number of roles out there that allow this. Like most people are just trying to kind of, you know, uh, you know, get get enough money together to get a mortgage, like I say. And I think what we can do is we can make small baby steps. Like we can try and use some of the, the ethical frameworks to kind of improve work. We can have, you know, good conversation with our peers around why using deceptive patterns is not a good idea. But I think if we set ourselves up with this unrealistic expectation would always fail and i think that's why we're in this challenging situation we are at the moment so i'd like to see i'd like to see a few more practical grounded talks and a few less talks um setting us up for this 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 gap which i think is really really tough to fill question over here 
Thank you, Andy. Uh, my name's Matt. Uh, firstly, thank you for wonderful talk. It's an excellent way to uh, wrap up UX Australia. Secondly, congratulations on saying no uh, and not travelling over here based on your ethics. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about that uh, throughout UX Australia this year and, and previous years. I'm just interested to hear a little bit more around the role of a designer as a facilitator um, when it comes to you know, this theme of being in our midlife crisis. If you could talk to that a little bit more, that'd be great. Yeah, I mean, again, another really interesting question. And I think we, we, one of the reasons we're in a bit of a crisis is because I think a lot of design's traditional role as a facilitator has been removed. I don't think it's been deliberate. I don't think it's been malicious. But I think when I look at kind of modern day product teams, I see uh, engineering leads and engineers who are delivering code. I see designers who are shipping interface. I see product managers who um, are not doing sort of uh, that kind of IC work. They don't have a big long list of tasks that they're going through to ship interface or ship code. So that means that a lot of product managers have time and space. Also product managers role is often to facilitate, maybe lowercase f, facilitate the, the transaction that happens between businesses and, and product teams and facilitate the sharing of information and knowledge. And so I come from a, a UX arena, a UX world, an agency world where designers were the prime facilitators. Like if we, if we start a project, we go in, we run workshops, we, we, we do design games, we do research, you know, we end up facilitating. And one of the reasons I think we like this designers and I like this designers is, is that, that Saarinen quote is, is it provides you with this important context. Now, I think product management have come in and because they have more time and more resources, they are the ones now that are often doing discovery. They're the ones now that are having the meetings and the, 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 the workshops with our um, decision makers. And they are not necessarily inviting us into those conversations, not because they are mean and evil, but because they know that we're already really, really overworked. And actually inviting us to every single meeting would be a, a really, really poor use of our time. And so I actually think that the role of designers as facilitators is slowly being diminished. Like I say, I don't think it's deliberate. I don't think it's, it's um, malicious. But I think if we want to carry on having that role, and if we want to carry on having those conversations in order to inform our, um, improve our design process, we need to sort of push for that. But we need to push for it in a friendly, supportive, meaningful way, rather than an antagonistic way. And this is fundamentally why I'm seeing a lot of designers, as I said in the talk, move into product management. It's not because they dream of being product managers. It's not because they want to be writing tickets and managing backlogs and all that kind of stuff. It's because they feel that the strategic element of design, you know, we all, I'm sure you're all aware of Buchanan's orders of design. I think at the moment, most designers in, in at least tech company product teams are focusing on that first and second order. I think UX designers operate on the third and fourth order. But that third and fourth order has been taken over by the business function. And so I think the desire to carry on doing the strategic um, long-term interaction design, UX design, service design thinking, the only space we can do that, unless we're working for a really, really design forward company like Airbnb, is to be moving into that product role. And so it's a shame, you know, it's a shame. And I've, I've written sort of extensively around how I do think the higher levels of UX design are slowly disappearing and being subsumed into product. Um, 
And I wish that wasn't the case, but I think it is the case. And like I say, there's no point fighting against a kind of um, a system when I think we've already, you know, we've already kind of ceded that control. And so I can totally understand designers' desire to move into product, to st st still keep doing design, but just under a different name and under a different guise. Thank you. Do we have another question for Andy? Well, we have one at the back. Hey Andy, thanks for your talk, it was awesome. Um, weirdly, I think you could potentially replace uh, the designer role with product manager and the talk would resonate to PMs as well. Um, have you seen, I guess, anyone that's facilitating the relationship between designers and PMs to kind of start sharing their uh, qualms because I think they have more in common than they realise? Um, have you seen that done well? I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I hadn't really thought about that, but, you know, we're, we're talking about kind of, you know, um, uh, not flying over to the to, to Australia to kind of like manage my carbon footprint. And maybe there's a there's a circular economy element to my talk here. And maybe I should start giving it a product management talks and kind of rebrand it and retitle it. And that would be incredibly sort of economically efficient. I think you're right. I mean, I feel comfortable talking about the designer's perspective because I come from a design background and I spend a lot of time speaking with designers. But when I speak to product managers, they are having all these same questions and these same problems. And actually, as I said in the slide, I think it's actually even harder for product managers because product managers don't have necessarily the, the influence we think they have. They are, they are stuck between these warring factions. Um, and a lot of product managers are having this sense of ennui and they're having this, this, these conversations around kind of the impact they're having on the world, et cetera, et cetera. So I completely agree. Um, the one difference is that product managers tend to be a little bit higher up in the decision chain. And I think the one thing that product managers have going for them is product managers often report into a head of product and that head of product is the same person that designers report into or the head of design. So you, you'll quite often have a situation where you might have you know, a very large company that have got like six or seven product teams and the head of product, the, the CPO, is managing six or seven PMs, maybe more, maybe 10 or 12 PMs, and one design leader. And so you get an imbalance where you've got six or seven people telling you one thing and one person telling you other. The other challenge is that most CPOs come from a product management background. And so they are much more attuned to listening to the concerns and understanding of the concerns that their PM reports have than designers. So I do think there is a power imbalance. And I think the only way around that personally, is to see chief design officers as well as chief product officers. And we are starting to see a few CPOs um, and, and CDOs working. So I think one way around this is balance. I also think um, the idea of a product triumvirate. You see in a lot of tech companies, they'll have this idea of, you know, the product team will be led by a product manager, an engineering manager and a design lead. And that can create some kind of balance there. But in terms of, in terms of kind of coaching and support, not really. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I'm a coach. I, I coach designers mostly, but I, you know, probably about a third or a quarter of the people I coach are product managers, product leaders. Often when I coach people, I might coach product, I might coach like the designer and the product person in that relationship, usually a, a head of design and a product manager, a product leader, a CPO or whatever, VP of product. And often the reason that they bring me in is partly because that CPO doesn't understand the culture of design and really, really struggles to have those meaningful conversations. So I almost come in and, and from when I'm coaching the designers, I encourage them to think about business. 
when I'm coaching the product people, I mean, encouraging them to think about design. And so that's also the role I take in kind of VC. Like I'm not going into companies and, 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 and drawing wireframes and doing the design work. I'm actually being a bridge between the, 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 the thought of business and the thought of design. And so people are doing this. And I think the more designers that move into the product role, the more designers will be able to be that bridge. But I think it's kind of rare. And so I think I'd like to see more people taking that kind of bridging role. And I'd like to see more organizations. I mean, I would say this is a very self-serving, but I'd like to see more organizations hiring coaches like me to coach um, design leaders and product leaders to kind of bring everyone to the table and have that balance. And so, um, yeah, that, that's, that, that's my thinking there. Um. I don't. I don't think there's another question from the floor, Andrew. Hang on. Um, but the, I'm. I'm curious about like, what is it about the tech industry and about technology, that design struggles in that context in a way that it just doesn't seem to struggle in, say, architecture or industrial design and the making of, you know, physical products. There's a very expected and central role of an architect in the design of a building. There's a very central role for an industrial designer in say the design of a motor vehicle. And yet when it comes to technology, we seem to keep getting shunted to the side by the marketing team or the sales team or the engineering team or now product management. Um, what, why? Um, I mean, I think there's a bunch of reasons. Um, I think, first of all, you know, digital product management on the web, particularly maybe has only been around for 20, 30 years. Architecture has been around for several thousand years. Um, and so I think the architectural world has a lot more history and, and, and time. You know, architects were originally um, headstone masons. Um, the, the term is, is, is a, a term that means kind of user of stone. And I think if you go back to the kind of the Greek and Roman times, the architects maybe weren't held in, in quite as much esteem as they are today. So I think time, um, but unfortunately, I think time also has to kind of come with um, creating space. I, I think one of the reasons we've kind of, I hate to say lost this battle because it sounds really defeative, defeatist but i think one of the reasons we have lost this battle is because for the last 20 years we as an industry have been having very very insular circular conversations that haven't necessarily positioned ourselves in good light you know we are still having debates around ux versus ui you know we are still arguing oh well design thinking isn't particularly useful and and when we do that actually we see control to other people you know while we're talking about design thinking not being useful the MBAs, the business graduates, are running design thinking workshops with, with our, our, our bosses. But we're sitting around saying, well, you know, what exactly is UX and, and who gets to do it? And, and how is that different from interaction design or, or other forms of design? The product managers are saying, well, we don't care. We're just going to prototype stuff. You know, we, we debate the nuances of, of user research and how research should be done perfectly. While at the same time, product managers are now kind of doing product discovery. Like... We argue about language, which is really ironic. Like we, we argue about language, but also we, we dismiss the power of language in a way that, that product managers go, yeah, well, we just call this thing product discovery. We know you've been calling it user research or design research, and or we can't call it user research because we're not using the researcher. We get into all these kind of really annoying kind of design Twitter type arguments. Yeah. 
and 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 the product manager's like, hold my beer. I'm actually going to go and do stuff, and I'm going to do stuff that's going to be valuable to companies. So I think I think we are our own worst enemies. And one of the reasons why I wanted to give this talk is to try and give us a bit of a shake up and say, let's stop having these kind of stupid circular conversations. No one cares. Let's start demonstrating value. I think one other big difference is just the cost. Like, um, it's, well, well, first of all, I think it's really easy to lord um, architects. I think so often. D visual designers, UX designers, interaction designers, digital designers, Lord architects. I've been to plenty of conferences like this one, like interactions like the IXDA, where architects are kind of held in some kind of some kind of awe. When you've actually worked with architects, they are often the least user centered you can imagine. Like they will produce these beautiful visualizations that are completely impractical. They will create experiences in in the um, in the maneuvering around of buildings, but not consider how these buildings are actually used and utilized. You know, I, I you know, I, I remember going to seeing one of Frank Geary's buildings once where the, the power plugs for the janitor sockets were three meters high and you need to get a ladder to climb up the ladder to plug the, 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 the power in because it looked nicer. Like, so let's not confuse ourselves that the architects, I mean, Geary is a particular um, instance there, but let's not confuse ourselves that architects are kind of perfect by any the stretch of imagination. But what they are doing is they are building things that you have to get right first time around. You can't iterate on a building. I mean, you know, if you're looking at the kind of the whole shearing layer thing, you can iterate on some of the shells, you can iterate on some of the skins, but you're building a thing that is likely to be there for 10, 100, 500 years. And the cost of doing this is really, really expensive. The same is, is product. If you're delivering a product, if you're shipping a product, you've got to iterate, you know, Dyson creating thousands and thousands of iterations of his first vacuum cleaner before putting it into production. Because once it's in production, if a defect comes, that can take your whole company down. Digital realm, we don't have that. The digital realm, we do not need to worry as much about getting it right first time. If it's broken, we have engineers on site, we can fix it. If something isn't working, we can look at the stats, we can improve it. Like I tried to kind of redesign my bathroom recently and I found it a terrifying experience because once I'd chosen the tiles and I was stuck on the wall, there was nothing I could do about it. Once I was choosing the paint work and the bath fittings or whatever, it was there and it's to be there for 10 or 20 years because I couldn't afford to do it again. And it was paralyzing. So I think the flexibility of our medium invites a different process but the heroes that we follow and the models that we follow that come from architects that come from product design do not set us up well for the flexibility we need for this medium and so i think we need to disentangle ourselves and disengage ourselves from those industries rather than setting themselves up as targets because they do not serve our needs and we actually need to define our own path and our own future and on that note thank you very much andy thank you